Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is Wednesday the 26th of the 5th. Michael, how have you been since uh, Friday actually? Because with the Chris Snowden interview, you weren't around for uh, Sunday. Well, neither were you. You just pretended to be because you recorded it and made it and then it played on Sunday. In fact, you are away on Sunday, probably climbing mountains or shooting elk. To start off with, Michael, I've been thinking... Uh, a couple of stories have come up recently that have sort of made me think a little bit about, you know, those people in the background of like organisations or politics that no one really knows what they do, but their presence seems to make things move smoother. It seems to make things not happen. And people generally only notice after these people leave and everything starts to go to hell for reasons no one is quite sure of. I remember these people used to exist. I'm not sure. P.J. Mara famously was Charlie's man who used to smooth things out. The likes of Bernard Ingham and Alistair Campbell and the Prince of Darkness across the waters. Yeah, yeah. There's sort of people who, if you were doing like a you know a highly metric analysis of a company, you'd probably assume they were useless and get rid of them, and then everything just falls into ruin because they're actually pretty pivotal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Also, the, there's also the, and the people just genuinely don't know. It's like um, it's like a Burkean appendix in a sense. It's the gate in the middle of the field. You come along and you think, oh, they're not doing anything. Let's get rid of them. You get rid of them and then the whole gaff starts to fall about around your ears. And you think, oh, they actually were doing something. We just couldn't quite see what it was. A couple of stories recently that have just made me kind of think that all of these people have left Irish politics. So stuff like, um, small stuff, like Darrow O'Brien, Minister for Housing, goes out and is turning the sod recently at a new build. And he just can't do it. He's just, he's just stabbing at the ground ineffectively. And you're thinking, like, a couple of years ago, someone would have been out there, a bit before that, wetting the ground so that he can dig it. And that might seem really minor, but it's the sort of thing people do. You would, What you would have done was you would have checked to see if the particular bit of ground was diggable. You would have seen, it. Well, is there any way we can make it diggable by giving it a bit of a dousing? Or if not, then you'd try and move it to somewhere which was diggable. But so, you would have been out there. To try it. I mean, yeah, I don't think because to me, when that happened, I thought, geez, that's bad staffing. That's a really minor thing. But he looks like a gum. What's really kind of brought it home, I think, has been watching some of the campaigns in the Dublin Bay South by election. So, I mean, Finna Fall put out a, a video there, which was just. Oh, if, if, if the uh, listener hasn't seen it. I'll, I'll include a link to it in the description because it's, it's worth watching just to see. To see and to realise that someone was likely paid money for this. Someone was likely made a lot of money. It is, it's cringe-makingly bad. It's really embarrassing. And then you're, you're, you're watching this pretty awful thing in front of you. And there's music to it. Now, remember, the theme is Fianna Fáil candidate running in, in Dublin Bay South. So the notion is problematic, challenging, difficult. The campaign for Finnefall's candidate in that area, is being run by Jim O'Callaghan, who has the votes internally in the party, or did the last time I checked, to get rid of Michal Martin. So if he does if he does well here, now he doesn't need to win, but if he can you know, keep the vote in Dublin Bay South and get a respectable result, it really helps his leadership chances. So this is important to him. Uh, this is this is the man who fancies himself you know, the next leader of Finnefall. Sadly, that doesn't any, doesn't anymore mean T-shirt, but that's really pretty fun. What's the theme music to this? You said you're, you're, you're going, Dun, is that the born identity? 
It's yeah, it's it's mission impossible. Something, Michael, which I'm sure they appropriately <laughs> licensed uh, at a very. It would be quite expensive, I would say, to license the Mission Impossible thing. Bloody expensive. Unless they didn't license it, which would actually be a substantial problem. Because, Michael, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with the, the music licensing people, but you don't want to. No. So Jim O'Cannon puts this up saying it's the Bourne Identity. Then it's the Mission Impossible theme song. Then you have this video of... It's, it's just cringeworthy. It's like something that would be created in the British version of The Office as a team-building exercise. And then it gets to the very end, and you have Vinifal's actual candidate who stands there, says her name, and then gets cut off mid-sentence. <laughs> yeah. Straight like, bang, gone. It, it's almost like she was about to say something terribly indiscreet or rather stupid or whatever, and they, they're just, okay, okay, we, we're going to have to cut it there, because otherwise it's going to be that. It was supposed to be an ad for her. Yes, in which she appears only at the very end, and then they're like, well, she said her name, fuck her, it's finished. If it goes, any, if it goes on any further, we're going to have to pay them overtime. It reminded me of that Fine Gael video during, I think, the last election, where they had I, who people I hope and would assume are interns wearing printed masks of Fianna Fáil politicians running around like monkeys. And in both cases, you just think that some adult person would stand there and go, now, is this a good idea? I'm not saying you can't do it, but should we do it? Is this up there with the own Harris twink sketch? in its classiness and wit, or is it maybe a little bit distasteful? Yeah, the, you, 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 you use the word adult as, well, of course, that has, I think, a, a resonance for a lot of people in Irish politics and just in Irish governments for the last number of years. There's very often been a sense, where are the adults gone? Was there no adult in the room? People don't realise how difficult comedy is to do, like pre-prepared, widespread uh, distribution comedy very very difficult so you, most of the time when i know when i'm dealing with politicians the general line is if you're not funny don't try and be funny because it's disastrous you have you know one or two pre-planned jokes which we can write out beforehand put those in organically somewhere into it but don't like don't try and be witty if you're not witty because you'll just end up looking like a gobshite and this is just like oh we'll do something funny and the problem then is you end up with something that just isn't funny at the end of it because it's very difficult for a political party to be funny. Tell a joke, fine. If you can do a joke, tell a joke. Then you're going to have a limited number of people. I mean, Doris. Sometimes the comic inability to be funny is in itself funny. And you can work with that. But this was seemed to be premised on the basis that these people were trying to be funny and had the capacity to be funny. And sadly, neither was true. Yeah, so you get a group of people who internally think they're funny and don't realise that they have to show this to other people who are not friendly towards them in many cases. And then, of course, you have James Gagan's campaign on Fine Gael's side, also quite important to Fine Gael. It looks good if Fine Gael can keep Owen Murphy's seat. It looks particularly good for Leo, if they can keep his seat. And then you have a... It's a complicated issue for Fine Gael on the ground in the area, because of the pharmacist. Yes, yes, yes. Then you have James Gagan, their candidate in the area... And you have Simon Harris decide to take a promotional photo. Simon Harris on the left, James Gagan on the right, and in between them, where the eye would naturally fall, a homeless person or what looks like a beggar. And they upload this, and they're just smiling and looking in the opposite direction. And you're sort of going, well, this is going to be immediately used to attack you, saying that you ignore the homeless and look at you not caring about them. 
So it shouldn't have happened. And also the fact that someone took that photo and no one at any point said, should we move slightly so you can't see the homeless person? I, I, I honestly, honest to God, I cannot envisage the circumstances in which that photograph was taken by people who had even a tangential experience with the world of politics. You have a candidate, you have a cabinet minister, and you have either a beggar or a homeless person in the centre of the behind. Gary, if, if, if I were taking a photograph of two people at a fun park, I would be aware of who was standing behind them. And I might wait until there was nobody standing behind them if it was possible. This is a political photograph which is then uploaded uh, to the uh, to social media. And nobody sort of said, nah, would the vision of a beggar or a possibly or apparently homeless person, would that be triggering or problematic in a political campaign photograph? I, I, I can't see why. I mean, it's not like housing or homelessness is an issue, Gary. So, what? what? Who does, how is it possible? Genuinely, can't think, cannot compute how it's possible. But then they removed the photo saying that it gave the um, the wrong impression about Finnef Gale. Amusingly enough, the wrong Francis, Francis Fitzgerald was the person who uploaded it. Ah, uh, hmm, hmm. Now, is that Francis displaying her usual natural ability, intelligence, and political savvy? Or is that Francis being supportive of the sisterhood? Is that... No, I know. I get Even Francis. Even Francis would look at the photograph and say, well, no, I, I don't know if it's a great idea having the beggar in the back. I think that might... That's not a great look for us. No, I think you're right. I, I, it is the sort of thing they'd assume Francis would have looked at and went... This just doesn't look good. But didn't. But didn't. They didn't. Now, it is also worth observing. There is something about the Gagan campaign, which is just the car crash that you can't stop watching. They, they hate him, Gary. Why, why do they hate him so? He's, he is, uh, relatively speaking, young, liberal. He has all of the dreadful, predictable nostrums of the, that these people hold. He is eminently qualified professionally he comes from a family background which is positively frightening i mean if this man was a horse he would have galileo and dane hill and seattle slough and northern dancer i mean the guy is in i mean he's an impeccable filigale candidate and yes gary and yes the opprobrium the picking the nastiness did you see the art? Did you see there was a, a it was, it was doing the rounds yesterday, a quote from the uh, the Cork Examiner about uh, him and Renewa. Yeah, I did. It was uh, it was unsurprisingly not accurate. I was shocked by Michael. Also, hasn't been corrected. It wasn't not accurate. It was. It from the I can't remember the name of the journalist now. It displayed, it seemed to me, either a lack of knowledge of the subject, which is not ancient, ancient history, Gary, you know, it's only not that long years ago that the thing happened, that if you knew so little about the subject, you really shouldn't be talking about it. In fact, if you knew so little about that particular bit of the subject, you shouldn't be writing about politics in Ireland. 
or you were writing just in nasty bad faith because you you knew what you were saying was bullshit. He made out he made the book that what was it that basic that renewal was basically when founded when this man was a member of it a single issue party anti-abortion party. Yeah. So what he had said was that um, Gagan was talking about repealing the eighth. And Brennan said that it should be remembered that Gagan played a key role in the foundation of anti-abortion, pretty much single issue really, uh, party renewer. Now we talked before about this and as I said I think Gagan moved over more from a sense of personal loyalty to Lucinda Crichton than anything else. I actually have no idea what James thought about abortion or things at this point, but that wasn't true. Renewa, and this this is not ancient history, this is what, like five years ago somewhere in that region? Renewa, when it started had a position on abortion that abortion was to be considered a matter of conscience and that no party member, even if elected, would be forced by the whip to take a stand, which they took an immense amount of uh, hits over and I'd say lost a significant amount of the pro-life vote because they wouldn't just commit to it. So they were seen as a pro-life party broadly by the public, but pro-life people who looked into it realised actually there isn't an explicit pro-life policy here. In fact, as you say, they lost the pro-life vote, a, a, a lump of it anyway, because at the time of the foundation of the party, when Eddie Hobbs became the leader, uh, the president of the party, Eddie Hobbs, he was on the Late Late Show, came out and said he personally was pro-choice. Now, all it was true, all of the TDs and the senators that were, came across, I that pretty much, were all pro-life. But it wasn't, you couldn't even say that it was simply a, an anti-abortion thing ticket that they left for the, the 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 rupture with Finnegale happened because Finnegale refused to allow a conscience vote. If there had been a conscience vote, they would never have there then they would they would have been in Finnegale and they would have lost the vote. But they would have stayed in Finnegale. It was only because the the pretty shabby I mean we're over going over old history here, the more than pretty shabby treatment of them by Finnegale the same Finnegale party which had allowed Alan Shatter to vote uh, for the banning of hair coursing, which was against a uh, uh, against a whip, uh, Finnegan government whip, on the basis that that was a conscience vote. Th- this vote was not, and they were out of the party. So it was it was far more about stuff like flat rate taxation, which I thought was you know. <laughs> Not maybe a bad idea, but an underexplained idea. Three strikes and you're out. No, there were actually, I mean, Renewa did eventually become, um, take a position on abortion, which was, was uh, out now pro-life. But that was after the 2016 election, by which point Gagan had left the party anyway. But there were many members of Renewa at the time who had very different views on abortion, but had joined either because they didn't like fin- the existing political structures or they liked the flat tax, which was weirdly popular with maybe not with the public but with certain uh, activist groups or just people who liked the idea of it you know just reform in general i still have the 2016 manifesto somewhere there's actually some good ideas in it there's quite a lot of good ideas in it 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 was it was it was an attempt the first attempt i suppose since the pds for people to actually have to to go out and think a little bit of blue sky i mean it's often you know the cliches Think outside the box, blue sky thinking, blah, blah, blah. But to actually do stuff which was a little bit different, a little bit more off the uh, off the reservation stuff. And therefore, there was some interesting stuff in it. There's some odd stuff in it as well. Which I, I, again, as I say, I didn't think the, bad, the flat tax was a bad idea, but I just thought 
it was a very under-explained idea. And again, in the face of a hostile media, you're really going to be pushing shit up a hill with that. Anyway, listen, we don't want to around the thing too long. It simply wasn't. The chronology is just simply that it was far, it wasn't a single issue party and it wasn't even a pro-life party. Plenty of, there were plenty of pro-choice people in it. It was only afterwards when, not just when he had left it, but by that stage, when they had lost their seats and Lucinda had left the party also, that the party went in a different direction. Um, perhaps too late at that stage, but I just thought it was a really, it was a, it was a, it was a la- either incredibly lazy or genuinely bad faith piece to write it like that. But that's the kind of thing that, that they're going after him with. And I don't know, is it, uh, is it animus from the, the sisters on the blasted heath? Is it, is it resentment from a, a corner of the party? What causes is Gagan put up a tweet talking about his support for repeal of the Eighth Amendment. And he was immediately jumped on by people because of the Renewa connection. And I'm curious if that was something he decided to do or something he was told to do, that they wanted to put some, you know, deep blue sea between him and Renewa. But if that was the case, it was still a very serious or a very silly thing to do because they should have been able to tell that if you come out with something like that, it's just going to be attacked immediately. These are not people, in many cases, operating in good faith. And even a lot of those who are, are going to think that this is a little bit of, shall we say, revisionism, regardless of what James's actual views were, or what Renewa's actual views were. And it should have just been seen, and just sort of, James, maybe you shouldn't do that. Or if you're going to do it, let's finesse it a bit. I can, I can, I can very easily see that the heat, that this would have been a direction that he was given by the party media people to do this, particularly in the light, well, it's in the light of the week that it was, it was the anniversary of the referendum. So lots of people were tweeting and quoting and putting, you know, if he, I, if he had been actually in any way active during the referendum, I would, rather than quote, just throw a tweet out there and supporting, commemorative support, shall we say, would it be more effective to see if they could find a, a photograph of him at a, a canvas or a, a meeting or a support, something, a visual that didn't that, that didn't involve a comment, maybe. But then again, maybe no such visual exists. Then maybe just leave the bloody thing alone. Are there that many people in Dunleary that are going to be voting on the something we voted on three years ago? Dublin Bay South voted very, very heavily in favour of uh, repeal. Of course. So we will see, but I just it's I just don't think it's a good idea, if it is the case, to make that an election issue at all, and you talking about it just feeds it. There are also ways this could have been done which would have minimised the ability of anyone to attack him for it, and they just weren't, because again, I just, I don't think those people are still in these areas. But there's been a degree of sort of carelessness towards the by-election from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that's very strange, given how important this should be for particular people in the party. Do we have any betting? I, I must check the betting. I haven't looked at the betting. Irish betting on politics, for those who are interested in doing so, is always very strange and is very tightly constrained. It seems unlikely, but could be, could it could it be fifth times a charm for Ivana? I just love, I, it, I don't know, I, I, I'm sure it's not intentional, but when her, uh, nomination was announced in what was i think an uncontested um ballot for the for the nomination all these people running out onto social media of course saying 
What a tremendous person Van is. Fantastic candidate. And what a wonderful thing it was for these people to have this choice. And that, several people talked about how, how, you know, how lucky they were to have this choice. And he thought, is, is that kind of a very low-level dig? Yeah, he, finally, you can, be the, you can be the electorate which actually says yes to Ivana after all those electorates have said no. Is this constituency number four? I don't know. But there have been many last elections, Michael. There have been more last elections than most people have ran in elections. Yeah, and to be fair, she's a fighter. She comes back. She obviously wants it, and she's willing to put up with the shit in order to get it, at least some of the shit. She's still in there. She's crossed the Liffey. She's gone south. And, you know... I mean, maybe, if every other candidate dies. (laughs) I don't think it's quite that unlikely. I don't know, Michael. You can only judge these things on past performance. Forum? It's a game of forum, is it? That's actually quite impressive, that you could run for a major political party that many times in that many different venues. With the media profile that she has. I mean, could you imagine if, let's say, there was an Ain2 or even Fine Gael or Fine Fáil candidate who had failed that many times and was running again, how the papers would discuss that person. It would be merciless. The evergreen candidate, the perennial candidate, the comeback kid. Talking about impressive lists of failures, multiple rejections and unwillingness to face the truth. But uh, Bacic just gets it, isn't this lovely? Because she is lovely. Actually, speaking of uh, journalists saying incorrect things, something I read in the Irish Times, there was a small thing, but it just stuck in my head. It was from Suzanne Lynch, who is the uh, Washington correspondent, to the Irish Times. And I did reach out to her about this and say, actually, I think you're wrong about this. But she was talking about um, Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court, and she said that all three of Trump's uh, judges were handpicked by the Trump White House, which is a weird thing to say because of the way that the, uh, the Supreme Court nominations work in America. But it's sort of intrinsic to the process that the White House has a hand in that. And then she said, and the right-wing Heritage Foundation. The, the Heritage Foundation? That the all three of his Supreme Court judges were handpicked by the Trump White House and the right-wing Heritage Foundation for the conservative credentials. And it was famously... Famously, the Federalist Society. It was a talking point for years. It was a point, talking point for a start during his election against... Uh, who did he run against? Oh, Hillary. God, how could we forget? Jeepers. Uh, well, he, he basically subbed out the, uh, the, the judicial appointments to this Federalist Society. They had drawn up a list. And then for, after that, his appointment... To the federal bench and the Supreme Court. Now, I'm not saying the Heritage Foundation would have had massively different choices, but there wouldn't be identical necessarily. The Heritage Foundation did recommend judges to the Trump White House and did speak up for particular judges. And the Heritage Foundation is, is quite influential in general. So they may have had some hand in it as well, and I would suspect they did. But yeah, during Trump's election, people were uncertain about how he would, um, how conservative he would actually be on certain judicial matters, because the Supreme Court is immensely important in American politics now, far more than it should be. And his promise that he would simply, he would use only judges that had been pre-vetted by the Federalist Society brought a lot of people to a side who were unsure about him, because they thought, well, okay, if he does that, then we're going to get the appropriate judges. That was well known and regularly referred to. Uh, is she, is she there in Washington? Correspondent. Yeah. To be frank, Gary, that, that's 
unless it was like a, a, a slip of the pen or a moment of confusion, that's not an error you should, I mean, you should know. I'm sitting here in the bog in Ireland and I know that well. I mean, you should, you should be able to understand the difference between the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. Like you said, the Heritage Foundation was very influential, especially in the Trump, because a lot of the other groups uh, had some prominent never-Trumpers involved in their... So, uh, whereas the Heritage tended to be, was more Donald positive. And there were a hell of a lot of people who went from Heritage into the administration, sort of second level. They did, and the Heritage had a lot of influence over policy, particularly in the Trump administration. But in this particular area, to say they were handpicked by the, the Heritage Foundation, I think is simply wrong. They were handpicked by the Federalist Society. The Heritage Foundation may have influenced exactly from who from those lists was picked, but the, the actual picking of who should be um, who should be considered would have been the, the Federalist uh, Society. And it's a sort of, it's a quite basic error to make but it's not i mean it's not technically wrong to say that you know, heritage were involved it's just handpicked i think massively overplays their hand and it's weird not to mention the federalist society enough so that it kind of gives me the idea that she doesn't really understand it's either an error or she doesn't understand the area and to not understand that sort of indicates you don't understand much about the republican or conservative space in washington at which point how are you the washington correspondent then again i think i i don't have any examples on hand but i have a feeling that suzanne lynch has written a couple of things particularly about republicans that i've read and sort of go i actually just don't think you know what you're talking about this might be someone who has many connections amongst the democrats but doesn't really seem to get the republicans that can that can happen i mean i remember Occasionally, I would get the Irish Times uh, and read Paddy Agnew. Paddy Agnew used to report on Italian football and on Italy generally. But Paddy was writing in Rome and I was living in Milan. And partly as well, it was clear from the way Paddy was writing that he was mostly socialising with people from the left and the far left. And in Italy, we do have a far left. And I was mostly socialising with people in the moderate sort of area of centre-right and conservative business people. And it was like we were living in two different countries and two different sets of news. It was genuine. And I don't think that he was particularly making shit up. It was just that this was the... He was, if you like, he spent all his time at, at, Demo, at, at Democratic dinner parties and I spent my time with Republican ones in an in, in Italian context. And if you do that, you will end up... It's not a deliberate thing, it's, but you will end up just with a fundamentally skewed understanding of the process that you're involved in. And it's not that you could necessarily, or you, you have to be some kind of partial, objective, impartial judge. But I think you have to be sufficiently aware, first of all, of your own bias. But secondly, and this is maybe the more, more I think, more problematic, you have to be curious. You have to be genuinely curious about what it is makes those people tick. And I think that maybe is the lack uh, a lot of the time. We discussed this before, Gary. Remember that there was some stuff that was been written a bit about you and a bit about grit and stuff like that. And describing and other people getting the epithet far right or right, hard right. And it was pl plain that whoever was writing the stuff, a young person, a young man, had no natural curiosity. He, he, he didn't have, it would probably, we could safely say, any friends who were conservative, let alone, we could say, right-wing. 
And he'd no natural curiosity to go out and actually ask, find some conservatives, find some people on the right and say, well, so what do you believe? He just swallowed a bunch of cliches and nostrums and off he went. Because I suppose it's easier to do that. And, you know, if you're a journalist, Gary, you're busy. If you're the Washington correspondent, this is sort of your job. Well, yes. But it's also, anyway, listen, we won't get, yeah, I would also say that it's the job of the newspaper that sends you there to make sure they're sending somebody who's intellectually curious and open-minded. I mean, that's one view of the matter. <laughs> that is one view of the matter, quite. That is quite true. It's not the only view. We were talking before, Michael, about how unwise it was of Boris Johnson to pick a fight with Dominic Cummins. Uh, Dominic Cummins, as we are recording this, is currently live in Downing Street talking to MPs about Johnson's COVID strategy. And it's being live-streamed. Let this be a lesson, Michael. Do not pick a fight with your close advisor who knows everything about you and what you've done. And particularly, don't pick that publicly so that he will feel the need to respond publicly. This comes under the heading of advice, which is difficult to, to get around, but really important. Like, for example, don't go up to a wasp's nest and poke it with a stick a lot. I know you think... Well, if you saw a wasp's nest, what else would you do except poke it with a stick? But no, Gary, the ancient wisdom tells us, don't. And that's much like... It reminds us of a, a, a Bill Burr comedy sketch where he's talking about people being bitten by snakes and how it would be perfectly reasonable to just go, but how did you get bitten by the snake? Were you doing nothing or were you fucking with it? <laughs> And I think we can class this as a clear example of man pokes snake gets bit terribly shocked that this could happen to him. But anyway, I just wanted to, to make a small point on that. One other thing I wanted to, to also talk about, Michael, is um, this global minimum corporate tax rate that Biden is pushing for and which the OECD is kind of going for now. Biden's administration seems to be going for 15% corporate tax rate. And for those who aren't aware of this, basically there is a renewed push that there should be a, a, a global minimum floor on corporate tax rate. And there are arguments for it, there are arguments against it. But the Biden administration is pushing this. Now, the Biden administration is pushing this, you know, for the common good, obviously, Michael, of everyone. Of course. But it would also be aware that if it can get a global floor on this, it makes American companies who may have, shall we say, stockpiled massive draconic levels of wealth. Hundreds of billions possibly trillions of dollars could potentially be repatriated back to the United States if they could get their tax problems with their multinationals sorted out. Huge rivers, wallops and dollops of cash sucking out from Europe and Asia, whatever, back to back to the old US of A, which they would like they would like that to, to happen, Gary. But that is that is merely a delightful side effect. The real impulse here is to defend the common good. Well, Kerry, it's like the old man used to say, was it Henry Ford used to say, what's good for Ford is good for America. In much the same way, what's good for America is good for the common good of the whole world. They are, they are, a, they are a, what is it? A, what's it when you, one set is identical to another set? Anyway, that's what they are. They're identical sets. They're a shining city upon a hill, Michael which we can look towards. We should point out that uh, 15% is an advance because they had previously been going 
for 21%. They've dropped it down to 15%, uh, which actually, uh, rather dangerously, in a sense, because that makes it far more likely that this may actually happen. There have been lots of positive voices being heard from within the G7, between the in the OECD, the IMF, World Bank, all sorts of all sorts of uh, global uh, type financial and economic figures have been looking at this plan, Gary, and smiling upon it, smiling at it even. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense here for people to go in with a relatively low rate in order to get acceptance of the principle of it, and that the rate can always be jacked up over time. Always. You just need the initial okay. The problem that Ireland has is that, um, should we say our, our economy and our, our tax revenue is highly dependent on not just multinationals, but a small number of highly motivated multinationals, Michael. We don't, we don't want anything that could cause an issue there. And for years, we were trying to kick this to the OECD saying, you know, of course, they should look at things, but it should be at an OECD level. And we did that on the very safe assumption that the OECD would never be able to get its stuff together and get anything over the line. Unfortunately, that seems to now be changing, in that they actually are closing in on some sort of agreement, although whether or not they get there is, is a different thing. So now we've started talking about tax competitiveness, Michael, and the importance of fairness. We are told that our saving grace is that all and any changes to taxation policy within the EU require unanimity. There is no qualified voting when it comes to this tax policy. So even if the 26 to 1 we vote not to change the law, not to change the rate, then we can stop this happening. And if the EU refuses to implement this new uh, dispensation, well then it, does, it just doesn't happen. The problem is going to Life is going to get an awful lot more difficult for us now that the United Kingdom is no longer a member of the EU. And rather than going around the gaff shitting on the English as Leo and Mr. Coveney spent most of Brexit doing, undermining them, engaging in some kind of odd political Tourette's in the case of Mr. Varadkar, they would have been better off building up relationships with countries in the middle, middle Europe, Eastern Europe, like Slovakia, Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovenia, the Baltic nations, Finland, wherever, the smaller countries. Because we've been used to, and we've never admitted it, Gary, but again and again, we were able to stand behind the fact that the Brits, we knew, oh, the Brits won't let that happen. When it was a question of trade or a question of, of uh, economics or tax policy, the, the, the Brits won't let that happen. So we can stand behind them at the same time with the face off. Well, we'd love to help, but you know, what's the point? Brits doing Now the Brits are gone. And the French, oh, the French want our tax policy. They have never liked it. Even though many tax experts will say that if, when you actually look at the French system, you have companies in France who are actually paying effective, effective corporate tax at 5% and less. But enormously complicated system. Yeah, so th this is an interesting point. You have the headline rate of, of tax, and then you have what you actually pay. So France, I actually don't have the figures on hand, but France is way below Ireland the last time I checked it. In Ireland, we have the 12.5 headline, and then I think revenue says that the actual figure is 10.3. 
Mm-hmm. And then if you look at only foreign multinationals, it's 11.1. It's actually relatively close to where it should be. Now, that's not to imply any sort of um, impropriety or anything like that. But there are various tax schemes that you can then make use of related to R&D or other things that will then lower your tax bill. So that that's what happens there. The problem we have now, Ireland does not want a global tax rate. But as Michael said, we're very used to being able to rely on England to do things in the EU. So it's unclear how we're actually going to deal with them when we're left to our own. We're not the only country in the EU that doesn't like these ideas. though. So we'll probably come behind those other countries while publicly proclaiming that, you know, we'd love to do it. It's, of course, you know, justice and all of those good things. That needs to be front and centre in anything. But there's just, you know, like some of those European countries, they're not going to go for it. And we will try and be the good boys in class rather than actually just stand up and say, well, we're not going to do it. Because we're just, we're just, we've never had an ability to do that. The thing to point out here is how highly dependent the state is on these multinational jobs. And I know people realize we're highly dependent, but I don't think people realize how highly dependent. The 10 largest multinationals in Ireland pay 51% of all corporation tax in this country. The top 100 pay about 80%. Nearly half of all employment taxes are currently paid by multinationals. And that, that is increasing dramatically, by the way. Those figures during COVID have gone up notably. So we nearly have a situation now where 49%, nearly half. If it continues this trend next year, it will be the majority of employment taxes will come from multinationals. Anything that could cause Ireland, those multinationals, to relocate or downsize their Irish operations is a threat to the state's finances at a level I don't really think people understand. No. You might say also, and I'm not one of these people who says, you know, that FDI is a bad thing and we should develop our native industries, blah, blah, blah. But we have been pursuing an FDI based economic policy now for 30 years and it has been in large to really successful except 30 years on we aren't we are fundamentally disproportionately rely uh, reliant on that on on the on on not just on multinationals but the problem i think as you've identified there is on too few multinationals i mean if we were reliant on a mixed basket of uh, like in, in, the, in the market, a big mixed basket of shares covering all sorts of different sectors, you might say that we're, we, we could weather it, but it's, it's a very narrow basket, and any kind of external asymmetric shock is, tends to have a disproportionately negative effect on our economy. Very small, open economy. We need, to, however, that, well, there are lots of ideas and things we could disagree or disagree about how you might go about stimulating a more uh, balanced uh, tax base. And if we want an example, you might argue, and you can argue this, it's a completely different case, but remember what the tax base had become like by 2008, where we were, where the exchequer had become not passively but actively reliant on various taxes and duties from the billing industry. And what happens when those taxes don't turn up uh, in revenue? And it's just a bloodbath. So when you have a disproportionate over-reliance on one or two sectors, 
it's not good news for the economy and you really need to do something about it. I don't know, Gary, if you saw the proposals from both the e the European community and the ERSI, ESRI, regarding uh, going forward uh, in post-pandemic economy. Yes, I have. And there was one, just one thing I wanted to observe, before, I, I meant to say the other thing, but if anybody's listening and they're looking at those, and one of the things the ESRI does at times is to compare Ireland with other countries in Europe regarding spending on particular parts of the social economy, whether it's health or whether it's, oh, I don't know, unemployment benefits or social welfare or whatever it happens to be. It was worth noting that they were using the GDP figures as the baseline figures for comparatives and, and then for what we're going to need to do going forward. Now, that's just how I would, would say well, it's certainly unfortunate, and you, 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 uh, some people might even argue it's dishonest. The GDP figures are not a real, realistic reflection of the real nature of the Irish economy. Should it, at the very, at the very least, should be looking at the GNP figures. We know the GDP figures are deep, are very, are, are wrong and distorted here, and that they're being used uh, deliberately so. Um, when people want to make certain kinds of comparisons here with spending that are not valid. Because you're comparing real GDP with with Irish GDP, it's a different thing, completely different thing. So anyway, it will be interesting to see what happens with this. Pascal Dunne, who gave a, an interview to Sky yesterday, where he said that he thought we will have the twelve point five percent rate for years to come, and this is being presented as a blow to Biden's uh, global uh, corporate tax plans, and we will see what the Irish government says on this, because the 12.5% is basically totematic, but it is also a historically weak government. There's lots of people who don't want an election. And if this becomes sort of, the, if a global consensus builds around this, and there's only a couple of holdouts, it'll be interesting to see how we handle any pressure that'll be put on us about it. You know, there are going to be areas that let's not be... If they really, really want this, there are going to be areas around all sorts of spending and all sorts of issues, both in the EU and at an, at beyond the EU level, they will be able to put pressure on us. Um, it has, you're, you're, it, that 12.5% has become totemic and whether for good or for real, I think we, I, we alluded recently when the cast this, when we, um, we were doing some work on tax, uh, tax uh, predictability here, and we were looking at some of the research that we done internationally. And one of the things that kept going up was that while tax rates were important, tax predictability, tax security was actually one was more important for companies investing in Ireland. So the problem, like you say, Gary, is that once you change it once, once you've broken that principle of iron-willed refusal to capitulate. You say, okay, we've got to 50%. You've established the principle. Well, at that point, well, the whole game is kind of over. You just have to hope that they, they, don't, they don't think that it's time to move and find some other more pleasant, flat-taxi kind of a place like Latvia. So just to, to, to close, Michael, just a, a small little thing. I saw a story there about how a, a human rights group was calling for saying that fracking was incompatible with human rights law and that the Irish government should push for a global ban. 
And I went and looked at it just out of a morbid curiosity, if nothing else. It's the Irish Centre for Human Rights in Galway. Went looking into this group. I think we've run into them before. I think they said some odd stuff before. But I had a look at the staff and nothing, nothing jumps out at you. But I love their description. Their description is the Irish Centre for Human Rights is one of the world's premier academic human rights institutions dedicated to the study and promotion of human rights, international criminal law and humanitarian law. And, you know, they've apparently they've developed a global reputation for excellence and they attract high quality <laughs> students and high level human rights policymakers. Two things came to mind. Firstly, self-praise is no praise. Something which we should probably, you know, hold dearer to ourselves, Michael. Nah. Nah. If we don't do it, Gary, no one else will. It, the, 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 the bump they do about themselves, you read it. And you think, first start, you know, if you want to do, you know, there's a way of upping yourself and there's a way of upping yourself. This is not the way. I mean, frankly, I'm frankly, I'm thinking, I cannot imagine Oxford or Cambridge doing this. I can't imagine picking up a piece of lit from Maudlin or Balliol or Jesus or Keys and, and thinking and hearing, oh, we are one of the words. No, no, they just, this is what we do. We're good at it. Come, enjoy. It's a little, it's a, a bit overblown. Also, the very notion, like, Jesus, fracking is against human rights, Gary. I mean, they really, they really work at making shite up, don't they? So they, they say, Michael, and the interesting thing here is when you actually go to it, it, they point out that this is actually postgraduate law students at the centre, and they themselves keep referring to them as students. But at the same time, it's a report by the institution. They say the fracking is incompatible with the state's legal obligation to protect the right to life, the right to health, the right to water, the right to food, the right to housing, the right to access of information, the right to public participation, the right to a safe, clean and healthy environment, and the rights of marginalised persons and communities. Which is a wonderful example that an academic with enough time on their hands can find literally anything to be the case. Or somebody did a word count and found that there were 673 and they absolutely had to, positively, definitely must, get... To 999. So they just got their thesaurus out, their thesaurus of legal uh, human rights wankery, and filled in the rest, for God's sake. I read the report, and Michael, you know, ever hear Bill Hicks joke about how if someone were to die, we wouldn't lose a cancer cure? <laughs> Let yeah. me just point out, if these yeah. people weren't there, I don't feel the, I mean, very respectful field, Michael, of human rights law would be any worse. But this is... This, they're talking about fracking and the right to housing. And they say it's it's the extractive industry has been recognised as having the potential to negatively impact the right to adequate housing due to the environment, environmental degradation the industry can cause. And then one of the points they bring out is the availability of housing will be affected as influxes of temporary workers push up rents and reduce available properties. Now that, Michael, is a little bit more xenophobic, I think, than... Uh, you know, these people might generally be comfortable with. I mean, they don't say foreign workers, Michael. But where are these workers coming from that are pushing up your house prices and marrying your daughters and bringing down the nature of the property? I'm fairly sure that actually we've been told specifically by human rights organisations we are not allowed to say that, I, uh, for example, in Ireland, house prices have been uh, put under upward pressure and how and so have rents because of the presence of a large non 
uh, native resident community here. Now, actually, I don't have a particular opinion about that myself. But people, some people do. They care a lot about. They they have a big thing about foreigners. Damn foreigners putting up the price of houses. But we're not. Then explicitly, don't. no, 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 no. You can't say that. And this this sounds very like that, Gary. Damn foreigners putting up price of houses. Do you know what else they're saying, Gary? Danford took my job! And then they go on that there could be forced displacement, Michael, resulting from people vacating their properties as a result of damage, or true coercion from private companies, and the quality of the community life is disrupted. Now that is their basis for saying that fracking, that there are constitutional issues and human rights issues with fracking in relation to housing based on those provisions. Like, if this was, if an undergrad student wrote this, and handed it to you on a subject where you agreed with them. You would have to go, like, lads, maybe. Maybe a little bit more. Also, I wonder if coercion from private companies would be things like companies going, we would like to buy your land, please accept this money. It also sort of assumes that you only frack in heavily populated areas. It also assumes you only frack in countries where there is no law. Mm. Where there's the law has been replaced by uh, privately, private security forces and the power of the almighty dollar. You know, and, and we know, Gary, of course, we live in a country where there is very, very weak planning protection, but there are still some brave souls who will be occasionally willing to object to a piece of uh, development. And the, when they're talking about the right to information, they talk about industry secrecy, which is thwarting scientific inquiry into the health and environmental impact of fracking's component parts. And again, you sort of go, that, even if that were true, and I don't think it is, that's the sort of thing you can deal with trivially through legislation. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, this, you know, this is the standard of Ireland's premier human rights uh, law group. So, you know, I'll include a link to it because, you know, it's fun. We shall um, be back. When shall we be back? We should be back on Friday. That's the 28th, is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so. So mind yourselves until then. Bye-bye. All the best.